This is exactly right. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. I think I will always want to solve Paula's case. I will always follow a tip because I do want to know. However, the book that I wrote is very much not about the solving of her case. It is very much about all the reasons that I believe that she died. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show. I've interviewed some people in person and some from my home studio over Zoom, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. This episode is about a young life lost, like many of our episodes. 18-year-old Paula Overbrockling's story is not only a tragedy, but it's also a mystery because her killer hasn't been caught. Author Catherine Dykstra's book is titled What Happened to Paula? But there's no question mark at the end, even though it's an unsolved case. It's a lot deeper than that. That's because there's more to unpack about this story than just what happened to this young woman. Catherine looks at the circumstances of Paula's case in 1970 Cedar Rapids, Iowa. She interviews the suspects and she examines why Paula remained missing for months before her skeleton was found. Paula's story is important because it's about how so many people failed her and many women in the area. Okay, tell me about the story. How did you start it? So this was a book that started for me as an investigation into a crime, and it sort of evolved into an investigation over all of the ways that women are at risk in the world. I began exploring all of the different things that I think contributed to her walking out the door that night and dying. And those things included the racism of the time, the misogyny, her class, The fact that she came from a family with not very much money. The book is really about how these things come together to make every woman vulnerable. As the book sort of progresses, I weave in the stories of many other women. There were dead women all over Cedar Rapids and all over Iowa in the late 1960s and continue to be. And so as I began looking into these other sometimes unsolved murders, I saw that there were similar pressures working on these girls as we're working on Paula. And so I saw that it wasn't just her that was in this risky situation, but really any woman just by virtue of being a woman. Paula was one of five children. She was the second child. She had an older sister who was about 18 months older than her. So they were very close and grew up friends as much as sisters. And then she had three younger brothers that were a bit younger. And her mother didn't work. She was from Oklahoma. She had moved to Cedar Rapids and married Jim Oberbrockling. They had sort of a difficult relationship. 
this is really common for the time. But all of these things were accepted. So Jim, he was a really gregarious guy. He was really well-liked. He was highly charismatic. He would go to the bars and hang out with his buddies and everyone loved him. He did magic tricks and he was just sort of a larger-than-life personality. He drank. And her mother, Carol, was this stay-at-home mother with five children. Jim was a insurance salesman and also a shoe salesman at times. And so there wasn't a lot of money coming into the house. Jim was out hanging out with his buddies and having a good time and meeting women and talking to women while Carol was at home with these five children struggling to make ends meet. So I think that, you know, it's hard to know how much Paula saw of that or how much she understood of what was going on between her parents. She had to have vibed some of that. When when I started to think about Carol Oberbrockling as a model for Paula, as all mothers are models for their daughters, she came across to me as someone who was very brave because 16 years into their marriage, Carol left Jim. This was a really difficult thing to do at the time, right? I mean, it's difficult to do now, but she was a woman who had five children. She didn't have an income. She had to go on welfare and cobble together all of the jobs. She wasn't qualified for much. She didn't have a college education. She had to do this in order to leave her husband. So in my eyes, I see that as a very brave act because we talk about that time period as, oh yeah, this was you know, the sexual revolution and women were leaving their husbands. It's easy to look back on that time period and sort of identify it as one thing. It's women's liberation. And the fact of the matter is that they still have to figure out a way to pay for their lives and support their children. And that was still really difficult because there were so many things working against women at the time. You know, women couldn't file for credit cards. You know, as I was thinking about this story, I wondered how that would have affected Paula. Do we have any idea what Jim's reaction was to this? He was interesting. Like I said, he was this charismatic guy and I think it was difficult for her to leave her marriage. I think they sort of went back and forth and, and she tried to leave him a number of times and for whatever reason, he was able to talk her back or she became afraid and didn't think she could support her family. And she tells a story about the day that the divorce finally came through and she and Jim are sitting in the back with the family under, I guess, they had a willow tree in the back of their house. Jim says to her, he's crying and he says, Carrie, that's what he called her, promise me one thing. Promise me that if you ever get married again, you'll get married to me. Carol says, oh, well, that's easy. I promise. Because she knew she would never get married again. You know, certainly not to him. And that for me also said a lot about her perspective on relationships and her own autonomy and her need to sort of stand on her two feet. This idea that I know I'm never getting married again. This is not something I want. At this time period, what is happening with Paula? Her mom has left her father. Doesn't sound like it was too acrimonious, but still, there's stress. When she was younger, I mentioned her older sister, Lynn. She sort of followed Lynn around, really looked up to her and modeled her behavior after Lynn. And they started in Catholic school. There was a Catholic school at the end of their block. When Paula was... 
a sophomore, I believe, she and Lynn started hanging out at this park in Cedar Rapids called Beaver Park. And this was kind of like where all the kids would hang out. In my understanding, it was sort of the first time that their world was broadened, right? So they were going to this Catholic school that was literally at the end of their block. So the world was only that big. But then they were introduced to this coming to Beaver Park. So they would go to Beaver Park. And this is where kids from all over Cedar Rapids would come. And so suddenly they were meeting public school kids and people from all over town. Cedar Rapids was highly segregated in in 1969. However, there was a small Black population. And so those Black kids would come to Beaver Park too. So it was like this cool intermixing of, of everybody. And I think that Paula and I assume Lynn really loved it. They were having fun. They were meeting people. It was exciting. And so they started to beg their parents to go to the public school, Washington High School. Eventually, Jim says, okay, I'll let you go as long as you keep your grades up. They go to Washington. Suddenly... Paula evolves from this shy, insecure girl into this confident woman. She starts wearing makeup and she was highly fashionable. She was she was beautiful. Interested in boys? She was noticed by everyone. All of the students noticed her. So she was getting attention from boys all over the place, maybe even too much. She's feeling more confident in herself, but that doesn't necessarily mean that she's ready for sex or, right. you know, ready to be in relationship. She's just becoming herself. She's been in such a bubble for a long time that her chronological age, I'm sure, does not match up with her maturity. With 100%. People. And how old is she at this point, remind me? She's probably 16, 17 okay. when she entered Washington. Uh, Lynn is what, 17, and 18? Lynn's 17, 18. Yeah, so okay. they're, yeah, they're about a year difference. And they were one year different in school. I'm guessing that Jim had a pretty heavy hand in all of his kids' involvement socially. Would you think, is he kind of a control freak? I wouldn't say so. He seemed a little more checked out and easygoing okay. than... Detached kind of guy. Yeah, not coming. Like, easygoing. He's around sometimes when he's around. And Carol was really the one who was much more involved in the girls' lives and had many more opinions about their behavior. So she's starting at Washington, and she's getting all of this attention. And I can only imagine that this attention was overwhelming. I think boys were calling her, and Lynn tells a story about Paula sort of pawning off her dates on Lynn sometimes, like saying to Lynn, so-and-so is going to call. He wants to go out with me, but you're going to go out with him. No. <laughs> and and Lynn being like, no, 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 that's not what I want either. I sense that it was both things, that she was coming out of her bubble and at the same time overwhelmed by all of the attention that was around her. And there was a lot. What a confusing time for anyone who's 16 years old. Yes. And it just would have been overwhelming no matter what she did. That's okay. So that's interesting. So she's getting a lot of attention. Does she settle on any one boy? She met Robert Williams one afternoon in Washington. She had, I think somebody had taken her money, had stolen her money, and she was upset. And Robert saw her and came over and offered to buy her a Coke. Night in shining armor. Yeah, very much so. And then they started talking, and I guess there was chemistry, and he began calling her, and they began going out. And it was, I think, an exciting time for both of them. But they had to hide their relationship because Robert was Black. 
I really struggle to understand exactly how the races perceived one another in Cedar Rapids at that time, because I do feel, and I had lots of anecdotal evidence, that there were quite a few interracial relationships. However, as I mentioned earlier, the town was highly segregated, and there were instances of racial strife that would sort of bubble up. There was a lot of action in cities in Detroit and in... D.C., exactly. But this didn't really touch Cedar Rapids. It was very quiet there. This was partially because the Black community was so small. Cedar Rapids was like 110,000 people at the time, so it's a small city as it is. And then the Black community, I think it was 2,000 people, and they all lived in one community. They were a community that were carefully eking out social change for themselves, but while being very mindful of not to ruffle any feathers. They needed to live there. They needed to get jobs. So as Paula and Robert are getting together, I think it was complicated for both of them. Carol Oberbruckling was not okay that Robert was Black, and Paula kept this a secret from her for a while. Robert was aware of there was another high school kid who maybe two years before Paula entered Washington was beat up after a basketball game, lacerations on his face, wound up in the hospital for three days. Though the newspaper doesn't say exactly what happened, it's widely known his infraction was that he had dated a white girl. So it was a risk for Robert as well. And then Paula, of course, was risking the ire of her mother. How did Carol find out? Ultimately, do we have any idea how long they had been dating? I don't think it could have been that long, maybe four months. My sense is that they started dating in the fall. And then in the spring, the Washington High School basketball team, of which Robert was one of the stars of the basketball team, had gone to the state championships, I believe. The Oberbrockling family had gathered to watch the championship on TV. Carol knew that Paula had been dating someone and she knew that his name was Robert. Carol had started calling Robert Mr. Basketball. Oh, Mr. Basketball, Mr. Basketball. That was how they would refer to him, to Paula, as just like an endearing thing. So they're watching this game all in the living room and somebody looks up at the TV and says, oh, there's Mr. Basketball. And Carol's jaw just drops. Wait a minute, that's him? It was secret, but also it was very difficult for me to tell how many people knew about their relationship because there were many people who told me years after the fact that they had no idea that Paula and Robert were dating. And then there were other people who told me Paula and Robert were such an amazing couple because he was handsome and, you know, maybe a little goofy. We wore glasses. He looked kind of studious, but I would say handsome. And they just made this striking couple, right? Tall and blonde and model beautiful. And then in that telling, it seems that everybody knows. So Carol finds out. Right. Through Mr. Basketball. Right. Is there a public reaction during this game or what, what ends up happening? Well, I don't know what happened in that moment, but I do know that days and weeks that followed were highly contentious. So Paula already was in that, I would say, very normal place as a teenage girl of separating from her mother. That's what we do developmentally. We're attached to our mother and it's a slow separation process. And then in our teens, it becomes sort of more swift. 
shift. And I think that that happens in many ways. You know, it can be sort of a calm process or it can be chaotic. And I think for a lot of teenage girls, including myself, I think that those rifts become very chaotic and it can be almost difficult to separate. And I think that that's sometimes because mothers cling. So Paula was already in this place where she was exploring her autonomy and feeling confident in her independence and becoming herself. And that already had Carol a little bit on edge. So Paula would do things like sneak out at night to meet her friends. She was smoking cigarettes and, you know, just doing all the normal things that teenagers do. And I think it was difficult for Carol. So then add in the robber situation. And I think it just really served to make the relationship very difficult. So what happens next in Paula's life? There's now tension between Carol the mother and Paul. Right. So after the reveal of Robert's race and after Carol and Jim have split and while Carol and Paula are struggling to sort of be in the same room together, frankly, I think there was a lot of combativeness. Paula comes to Carol at one point and says, I'm moving out. I'm leaving. So she's 18 years old, right? And Carol says to her, this is what Carol told us. Carol says to her, does this have something to do with Robert? And Paula says to Carol, no, it doesn't. But of course, she knew that it did. And indeed, Paula ends up renting an apartment in a house that's maybe two or three blocks from where Robert lives with his mother. With what money, though? She had a job. She was working in the Mrs. Department at the mall. She didn't stay there for very long. So her and Robert's relationship had become sort of rocky after he graduated. So he was in Lynn's class. So he graduated with Lynn first. first. And that following year, he wanted to go play basketball and go out for a college team. And he was, I think, back and forth between different colleges, doing tryouts. And the way that he explained it was that he was not there very much. And I think during that time, Paula, either because of the pressure put on her by Carol, which frankly, I think was a lot, or because of her own misgivings, not because of his race, but just because of the relationship, or because she met someone else, she was pulling away from Robert. I would say they were very off and on. I sense that when he came to town, they spent time together. But when he was away, it was like they weren't in very close touch. She's dating other people. She's for sure dating other people. She's 18. Why can't she go out with whoever she wants to? She's not married to these people. And I just felt this real, you know, she's 17, 18 years old. I felt a, like an empathy for somebody yeah, at that age. Yes. So she starts seeing other people. And this is when she meets Lonnie Bell. Lonnie Bell is 21 years old. He's already graduated. So he's older than she is. They met at a lake one day, hanging out. And then months later, they started hanging out again. So Paula, she stayed in the house by Robert's house for a very short period of time, less than a few months. And then she moved again. And she moved again because at this point, she had decided that she was breaking things off with Robert in order to date Lonnie Bell. And my sense of her relationship with Lonnie Bell was that it was highly contentious as well. Debbie Kellogg, who was Paula's roommate, says that Paula never really even liked Lonnie that much. Lonnie was kind of a wild card. I think he was a little rash and maybe not the easiest person to be around. Is he black also? No, he's white. 
There was no one that I interviewed that was like, oh, I loved Lonnie. Uh, okay. So he's a bad boy and she's attracted I mean, to this type of boy maybe this one but time. I don't, yeah, I don't even know that she was that attracted to him. There's a part of me that thinks that maybe she was trying to appease her mother by dating a white guy. Um, or maybe it's a good excuse yeah. to, to, to break up with Robert. Yeah. Or something they, to do. I mean, just, some, you know, she's 18. Exactly. So. Exactly. I think that maybe they had fun together and he was in circles maybe that she wanted to run in. And so they started hanging out. But even that didn't last very long because she died. We're talking with author Katherine Dykstra about her book, What Happened to Paula? A 50-year-old cold case. 18-year-old Paula Overbrockling has broken up with her boyfriend, Robert. Maybe. And now she's dating a new man, Lonnie Bell, who seems to be a little bit of a troublemaker. So this is in June of... 1970. She's just graduated high school. She is now living in this $12 a week boarding house. On June 10th, she checks out from work, you know, at about nine o'clock and comes out and Lonnie's waiting for her there with his red Portia and Ben Carroll, who's a friend of hers. And their plan is to go to this concert, concert, I use that word loosely, I guess, this show at like a bar. They drive across town to the Nowhere Lounge and... (laughs) (laughs) The Nowhere Lounge, okay. And at some point in the night... Around 11, 12 o'clock, Paula says that she's ready to be taken home. And a lot of this is really difficult for me to nail down because there are differing stories. When I looked at the case file, when I looked at the interviews, there's no one narrative. I'm telling you what I think a lot of people accept as the narrative, but I don't necessarily know that it's... What really happened. Right, exactly. So they get into Ben Carroll's Mustang, and this is all three of them, according to this first story, Lonnie, Ben, and Paula. And they drive back to Paula's house, and they drop her off. And then Ben and Lonnie continue on their night. There's a whole raft of things that they did or maybe didn't do that night. And Paula comes in. Debbie Kellogg, her roommate, tells police that Paula was upset. Okay, she's crying. Debbie had just gotten off work herself earlier in the evening. And Debbie goes to bed because she's got to work the next day. And suddenly Paula is knocking at her door at some point and saying, can I borrow your car really quick? And Debbie agrees. And so Paula takes her keys and that's sort of it, right? So she she leaves. She disappears after this. Yeah. There were a couple people who saw her that night. Debbie drove a Nova and the Nova's gears would stick, I guess. This was like a common problem of cars at the time. This happened and Paula was pulled over 10 minutes away from her house and this merchant policeman stops to help her because I guess it takes two people and somebody under the hood and then somebody in the car in order to get these gears unstuck. Wait, what's a merchant policeman? Almost like a -a run-a-cop. I didn't even know that exists. Okay. Yeah, yeah. This merchant policeman helps her get the car started. 
First Avenue is where all the kids cruise. There are these girls who said, oh yeah, I saw Paula that evening with this guy helping her under the car. And then they circled back around to go see if she was still there. That was it. She was gone. So those were effectively the last people to see Paula. But the last person to have contact with her is this merchant policeman. Yes. He turns up in the police file. He came out of the woodwork, must have read about it, and came to tell the police what he knew. Good. Yeah. So she is gone after So she's gone, yeah. So the next morning, Debbie wakes up, her car is gone. She considers Paula a responsible friend and is very confused by the fact that her car is not back. She's calling Carol and Lonnie and Lynn and saying, have you seen Paula? Paula was supposed to be at work the next morning. Carol calls the manager. No, she hasn't shown up there. So everybody's, of course, very worried. A few of them get together and they start driving around looking for the Nova and they find it abandoned outside of sort of like a quickie mart and under a no parking sign. So they're hoping it's going to get towed, maybe? (sighs) I don't know. So they find the car. Keys are gone. There's no purse. Carol Oberbrockling phones the police The police show up and rather than dust for fingerprints or look at the car at all, they tell Debbie that she needs to move it or else it's going to get towed. Oh, come on. Right? So this this is the real police force, not the the merchant police. No. So this is the attitude of the of the police. And and frankly, it continues. When they told them to get the car out of the way, Carol's telling them, Paula might have been a lot of things. She might, you know, she might have been a partier. But she and Debbie and everyone is telling them she doesn't disappear. She's a responsible person. And we don't feel good about this. And I, and I don't feel that they took them seriously. So that is, in fact, what the police told Carol. They said, oh, she's probably at some concert like Woodstock. You know, I feel like it's that cavalier attitude that led to a lot of lost time. So what happens? They move the car, obviously. Yeah, so days went by before the police conducted their first real interview with Carol. I think it was something like four days before they finally show up at Carol's door. And she's calling everyone at this point. She's She has a contact at the Cedar Rapids Gazette, someone that she knows. She's saying, can you write a story? Can you post something? And Smart. Yeah, well, and the editor comes back and she says, nope, nobody here is interested interested in your girl, basically. She just got this complete disinterest from everyone. Is that because of her socioeconomic status? I sense that it is. So as Carol tells the police in this first interview, she let police know that Paula thought that she might have been pregnant. Um, So I think it's that too. I think from the police's standpoint... She's having premarital sex. She's she's from this family. Who did she think the dad was? So she was seeing both Lonnie and Robert kind of in that lead up. Did Debbie have a hypothesis about the pregnancy? So Debbie says that she didn't know. That would be surprising, wouldn't you think? Yeah, I would think. Tell me again, remind me who brought up the pregnancy thing. This story is so complex because there are so many mysteries. People are trying to protect themselves. I think that's true. And that gets into what I was saying earlier about this being about risks associated with being a woman. Mm -hmm. Because if Paula were pregnant, I think that 
it's possible that even anyone who knew would be trying to protect her reputation Hmm. by not telling anyone. This is a period of time where being pregnant was one of the very worst things for a young girl, for someone who wasn't married. It would be devastating to your entire life. You would be judged and shamed. And there was so much riding on this. Particularly in a small city like Cedar Rapids. Exactly, where everybody knows one another, right? And she's Catholic. Maybe there were people who knew and felt that they needed for it to be a secret. We are now kind of getting into your main sources. So I'll recap. Carol is her mother. Jim is her father. Lynn is her older sister. She's dating Robert and Lonnie. And her really good friend and roommate is Debbie Kellogg. That's correct. Of all of these people, I know you didn't speak to everyone. Your mother-in-law didn't speak to everyone. But who is the most reliable source, do you think? It sounds like probably Debbie. Wouldn't you think Debbie would have the least? It's very difficult to know. I don't think that anyone lied to the police, and I don't think that they lied to me. But I think that there was just a lot of complications with regard to keeping her reputation intact. So I think it means that it's possible that somebody knew she was pregnant and didn't say something at the time. I don't know. That's a tough one. So... Four days, they interview Carol. The Nova has been impounded, I'm assuming. Are they now looking for fingerprints? No. (laughs) So, yeah, it's rough. I mean, it was a small town. They went around. They talked to a handful of high school kids and tried to search for her. But these interviews and this part of the case file really only lasts a month. You know, there's daily interviews that are done in the case file in July. And then there's a few in August and then one in September. And by October, November, they've basically stopped looking. And then after things Thanksgiving, Carol and Lynn get a call from the police and they say that they want to come see them. And it turns out that two boys had been hiking with their father and they had found human remains adjacent the Cedar River, just beyond the mouth of this culvert, a pipe that diverts rainwater under railroad tracks. They had found this skeleton. Yeah, it was awful. And her body had been sort of horseshoed around a stake that you would use to secure a pole, Mm. a a guy wire stake. I think is what they call them. The skeleton hat on the dress that Paula had been wearing. Is that how they identified her? They identified her with dental records. Okay. Sometimes um, I can't place yeah. what's available and what's not available yeah. in a different time period. No, she I'm had- used to the 1800s where almost nothing was available. Right. Yeah. No, they were able to use it dental records to identify her. And of course they told the family. And while I think I know that it was devastating to them. Carol says that there was also like a weird relief. Finally, she knew where her daughter was because this whole time, that whole four months, she didn't know. So cause of death? So there is none because her remains were too decomposed. According to the autopsy, she was just too far decomposed for them to tell what had happened. Where do they think she died? Would it have been she was dumped into the river and she had washed up or? No, the river was far. She was was either dumped right there or she was dumped maybe at the top of this culvert and maybe washed through. So tell me what happens next. Carol's devastated. Is Jim devastated as well? Do we know? Yeah, well, so Jim actually is across the country at this point. After he Carol divorced, he moved to Colorado. And so he's actually not there, although, of course, Carol calls him and, you know, I'm sure they're both devastated together. The next six months, there's very heavy interviews with 
many people who bring up many scenarios to the police. It's murder. And now the police are going to revisit because they have a body. Is there lots of media attention in Cedar Rapids? So first of all, I don't call it murder in my book. It's it's homicide since we don't know how she died. And there are other potential ways that might not have been murder. So I have used the term homicide. There's barely any media attention. Um, it's so surprising to me. It really is. So there were basically three stories ever written about her death, one of which was her obituary, the discovery of her body, a follow-up, her obituary, and I think that was about it. Does this circle back to your idea of socioeconomic, everything that she represented in this town? Yes. Including being a woman. Yes. You know, when I look at this case, I see all of the ways this girl was failed. She was failed by the media who didn't cover the case. She was failed by the systems in place that had her with very little opportunity and a way out. That She was failed by all of the shaming that happens in towns like this, at times like this. The ideas that women could only be these one things and anything outside of the box was somehow deviant. And I really feel that there were so many things that sort of came together, you know, that really conspired against her and girls like her. So the case went cold. The case went cold, yeah. What's interesting is the pregnancy is a big question, right? So if she's pregnant, one of the things that came up multiple times in the case file where people were saying that she had gone to go get an abortion. So this is three years before Roe v. Wade. It's 1970. Abortion is illegal, obviously. First, it comes up, oh, she went to Florida to go get an abortion. Well, it sort of ends up crystallizing around this chiropractor who had been, I actually was able to interview someone that had gotten an abortion by him. Wow. Yeah, who had been giving illegal abortions during the time. In Cedar Rapids. In Cedar Rapids, yes, in his wife's hair salon. Um, yeah, he was a shady guy, but the police never interviewed him. They never went to his door. Many people brought up his name enough that this seemed like at least a possibility. They never followed up on this. Did they settle on anybody? Were they leaning towards Robert or Nerdwell Robert, Robert never really seemed to be a suspect. Oh, that's good. Which is interesting considering the time. They sort of cleared everybody very quickly. Robert had been at a an all-night party that night. So he's alibi. I got, yeah, but literally one person in the whole file is like, I think I saw Robert at that party. Yeah, I mean, a party is a terrible alibi, right? just in general. You would think with all of those people, but it's also so easy to disappear from a party. And then Lonnie was alibi. They said, oh, well, so Paula was tall and they said, oh, well, Paula would never fit in Lonnie's trunk. That's why it wasn't Lonnie. Um, okay. Right, which is ridiculous because could she fit in the passenger seat? Could she fit in the back seat? Did he have an alibi, Lonnie? No. Lonnie was driving around that whole night. And we don't have any idea why Paula was upset when she left them to begin with that night. No. Debbie just knows that she was upset. Yeah. Do you have a hope for this case? What is the potential to happen? It's interesting. I met with the cold case detectives a number of times, and there was another girl who had been murdered in Cedar Rapids, and I think it was seven years after Paula. So this would have been 77. And her name was Michelle Martinko, and she was stabbed to death in her car in a mall parking lot. And her case was also unsolved for nearly as long. But then, maybe in 2008, 18, the police were able to obtain DNA from the interior of the car, some bit that they had saved. And with that DNA, they created first a profile of the suspect. And there was 
an image and probable weight and build and eye color and hair color and all this stuff. And then they were able to take that same DNA a few years later with even more advancements and those sort of genetics companies, 23andMe, and they were able to send it there and they found a familial match and they narrowed it down to these three brothers and they ended up taking DNA off of a straw that one guy was using in a pizza place and they identified that it was a match. That person has just been convicted of Michelle Martinko's murder. Wow. You know, and this all happened while I was reporting Paula's case. The thing that is so infuriating is they don't have DNA from Paula. By the time November rolled around and they finally asked Debbie Kellogg to bring in her car, Debbie was like, oh, I've washed my car like... Uh, six times since this, of course. And not only that, but her hands and wrists had been bound. Oh. So the bindings, the dress. When I spoke with the cold case detectives, there was a terrible flood in Cedar Rapids in 2008. Their contention is that all of the evidence that had gone along with the Oberbrockling case had all been damaged by floodwater. So there's no DNA there. This cold case team, my sense is they're retired detectives. And I think that there's lower hanging fruit. I think this is a hard solve, whereas there are other cases, plenty, where there's actual DNA evidence and that they consider, you know, low-hanging fruit. This sounds like a ex-wife coming to the police and saying, my husband's been talking about this. I do think that, but it's hard because at this point, so, you know, we're 50 years on. Yeah. There are so many people that are gone. Is Lonnie still around? He is. Did you get to talk to him? I did. A couple times. What was that like? I think Lonnie's had a really hard life, maybe. He wasn't in the best shape. What about Robert Williams? So Robert died last year. Oh, did you get to talk to him before? I did speak with him, but now he's gone too, so. So you're running out of people who know. Who in her family that you spoke to is the torchbearer in this case? Is it her sister? Is there one? <sighs> I don't know. They've all come to peace with it, maybe. I think that that's true. Because her mother's gone. Her so. mother is gone. Her father is gone. One of her brothers is gone. I think that they've had to learn to live with this. Tell me why your mother-in-law was invested in this. My mother-in-law, Suzanne Taylor Chihawk, went to school with Paula. They were different years, and I think they only overlapped or maybe not at all. Paula was sort of legend at school. And this is at Washington High this School? This is at Washington High School, exactly. And my mother-in-law ended up going to boarding school. She was shipped off for the same things that Paula might have had her mother had any money, right? Like, so if Carol Oberbrockling had money, then maybe she would have also been able to send her unruly daughter to boarding school like Susan's parents were able to do with her when she started acting out or not following the rules. But the Oberbrocklings didn't have money, so they weren't able to do this. So Susan goes to boarding school and after boarding school, she hears the news of Paula Oberbrockling's death. And it was something that just never left her. She wondered for years and then she was in Cedar Rapids and she decided she wanted to learn more. You know, the thing about what happened to Paula also is, is she was forgotten. Her family obviously didn't forget her and the people who cared about her obviously didn't forget her. This happened, the police file was closed within two or three years. There's no media, there's no one being like, what happened to this girl? It was just nothing. It was just silence for, for decades. 
Susan decides, whatever happened with this thing? Like it was never solved. Whatever happened to this girl? And so she is able to obtain a court order for the case file. She had done more than 10 years of research before I ever came on to the book. Yeah. And so she was able to speak with many people who I was never able to speak with. Carol, for example, was dead by the time that I came on to the project. But between the two of us, we were able to speak with Carol and Lynn, Robert and Lonnie Bell, a number of her friends and people that knew her during school. The book becomes a layering in of other women's stories. So those women and the people that surrounded them were also people that I spoke with. We spoke with quite a few people. I became enraged for Paula, for the way that her case had been painted and for the way that she had been given up on. And I think I will always want to solve Paula's case. Since the book's come out, I've gotten a lot of tips and stuff. I will always follow a tip because I do want to know. However, the book that I wrote is very much not about the solving of her case. It is very much about all the reasons that I believe that she died. On the next episode of Wicked Words... I think that whoever did kill Bessie Ferguson to Oscar was your Golden State killer until he was caught. I think this was the case for him. This was the case that haunted him. Yeah. And to go to your grave without an answer, you know, I, I absolutely empathize with how he was feeling about that. If you love historical true crime, please check out my books, American Sherlock and Death in the Air. This has been an Exactly Right, Tenfold More Media production. Alexis Amorosi is our producer. Andrew Epen is our sound designer. Ella Middleton is a researcher for us. Curtis Heath does the composition. Nick Toga did the artwork. And Ilsa Brink designed the website. The executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. If you are an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com slash ads. And if you know of a historical true crime story that could use some attention from the crew at Tenfold More Wicked, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. Listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. 